Okay. We're going to be trying to cover verses 23 and 28, 23 to 28 of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 to 28. It starts off uh, with a statement in verse 23 that basically summarizes what we were, or, or draws a conclusion from what we were taught last week. Uh, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Uh, And uh, last week we saw that the new covenant involves a will, and I don't mean it is my will to do this, I'm talking about that legal document that distributes an inheritance. Uh, it involves that the, the new covenant involves a will and it involves an inheritance. We saw that this made death necessary in order for the will to take effect and for the inheritance to be distributed to the heirs. Death has to happen or the will does not take effect. And uh, yet another reason for the death of Christ. God's plans are the, the best physical illustration I've been able to come up with for, for what I'm trying to communicate here is that God's plans are kind of like an onion in that You can just peel back layer after layer after layer, and there's always more. Uh, You know, we talk about Christ's dying for sin. It just goes so far beyond that. Not that that's a small thing. To us, that's everything. But the more we spend time meditating on it, looking at his word, the more we see, oh, Here's another reason why he died. Oh, here's another reason why he died. Oh, here's another reason. His word is just so rich with meaning. I encourage you to dig. Uh, It is the revelation of an amazing God and an amazing Savior. Um, We saw that that since the first covenant was a shadow of what was to come, it also had to include death and bloodshed. The natural, logical, and understandable conclusion is that since this was depicted in the old covenant, it would be a part of the new covenant. But the death and blood of the new covenant would be, of necessity, better than the old. If the old is but the shadow, you know, if, if, if you're a child and you're terrified by something that's happening, you don't want your father's shadow. You want your father. And the old covenant was just the shadow. The next verses, the ones that we're going to look at this morning, give us several ways in which the sacrifice of the new covenant is superior. 
But before we dig into that, let me clarify one possible misunderstanding of verse 23. Uh, look at it again. The, Thus it was necessary that the copies of the heavenly things or uh, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Although death and the shedding of blood were absolutely necessary for both the old and the new covenants, the reference in this verse to the purification of the copies and of the heavenly things absolutely does not refer to any impurity, defilement, or sin in heaven. It is not saying that some heavenly temple was somehow impure and needed to be purified. Um, that would be an impossible thing. And so I just wanted to really quickly touch on that. Um, yes? Creating an impure. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's an excellent thing. Excellent. That's an excellent point. Thank you. I love that. Um, because what he, in essence, what he did was create a perfect shadow. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was only a shadow. It is our defilement that we brought that we bring to the equation because we are in Adam. We are born in Adam. That is the defilement that needed to be removed from the earthly tabernacle. It's been touched by that which is impure. And one of the prophets, I can never remember, I can't remember which one, uh, talks about. You know, if a holy thing touches an unholy thing, does the holy thing make the unholy thing holy? Or is it the other way around that the unholy thing defiles the holy? Uh, and, and that is the point that he was emphasizing was you by your, your wickedness are defiling what I have set up. So I really appreciate you adding that thought. I um, did not think to include that, but it's wonderful. Um, heaven, and by that I mean the abode of God, is not a physical place with buildings, etc., that can be defiled. To see one possible understanding of this, though, let's take a quick look at 2 Corinthians 5.1. Uh, if somebody can look that up real quick and and read it out loud. Okay. Well, we know that at the tent that is our function comes we have building God a house not made hand. Okay. So what do we what we see there, and that word tent 
as given in that translation, is just like that one we looked at a couple weeks ago, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's the same word for tabernacle. And part of this purification ritual was purifying the tabernacle in order that it might be acceptable before God. And this says that our physical bodies and our physical existence, or our physical bodies are our tabernacle, but we have another house. And that was another term for the, the tabernacle or the temple was the house. And we have another one that's not made with hands. Our hands did not defile it, cannot defile it. Made without hands and it's eternal and it's heavenly. And that's what those who are in Christ get to look forward to. Then there's 1 Peter 1, 2. I'm just I'm just looking at a little one staring up into someone's face and I love that. <laughs> that always just gets me the way they lock onto a face. Uh, um, does anybody have first Peter one two? Okay, and what I'm drawing on there is he's talking about those who are elect being sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And what did we see last week? He had, that Moses sprinkled both the covenant and all the people and the tabernacle with blood to purify them. So it, one possibility here is that what he's talking about is the heavenly, that we had to be cleansed, we had to be purified before the heavenly, before we, we would be fit for the heavenly uh, usage. Now, that, that's just a thought. I'm not standing on that saying, this is what I believe. It's, it's a thought at this point. I have not looked into that deeply. Uh, so, I'm, it, I'm just saying that um, <laughs> um, I'm just saying that in one way or another, the language of the passage is not talking about an actual cleansing of heaven um, or of impurities, uh, as, as our brother pointed out here. So now let's move on to the next verses. And to help us to see the new covenant more clearly in contrast to the old, I want to overlap these next verses we're going to look at with what was said in verse 7. So we're going to be bouncing back and forth between verse 7 and these verses here. Um, there was a section when I when I taught two weeks ago that I the time ran out and I left out, and it's kind of key to what to these verses right here. Um, and so I want us to to take a look at it. As you can see, my uh, whiteboard artistry leaves a lot to be desired, but um, <laughs> what's that? You, that? That's better than my handwriting, actually, but um, all right, so we're going to look at, now how did, how did my Bible, 
on my computer, thank you, turn from Hebrews to Deuteronomy without me doing anything. <laughs> it's a lie. All right, so starting in verse 24 and comparing it with verse 7, um, when it's talking about the Holy of Holies, it says the old under the Old Covenant in verse 7, who could enter? Does anybody just remember off the top of your head? I'm sure most of you do. The high priest only. So we've got... High priest only. So we start here, verse 24, for Christ has entered. Christ. I'm going to express that this way. It was not just an ordinary human who entered. It was the God-man. It was the one and only sinless man to ever live. Who had, for that reason, no need to offer a sacrifice for himself before he passed through that veil. He had no need to fear going through that veil. Anyone else seeking to pass through that veil would die. Good luck. Good luck. I mean, if you think back to the early days of the, of the Old Covenant, at, um, Nadab and Abihu, I went blank on names, uh, Nadab and Abihu, two sons of Aaron, two priests, which means they had every right, not just the right, the responsibility to go into the ordinary place, the, not ordinary, but um, the, uh, the holy place, the first section of the tabernacle, and do their work there. And they offer and every responsibility to, to give sacrifices and to burn incense. But they decided they were going to approach God with a concoction of their own and paid for it with their lives. And that wasn't even trying to go into the Holy of Holies. It is a serious thing to seek to approach God, the living God. It is a deadly thing to approach him with anything less than the God-man as your way. Um, so Christ has entered. It's a fact. It's the end. It's the purpose for which all of this was created, was, was developed to put forth the image of that man presenting himself. Before God. There is nothing more, more priceless. More precious to you and me. Than that. Now. What about the what? Verse 7. Says. But into the second. 
chamber part room of the tabernacle. The second place, the Holy of Holies, a physical tent. A man-made tent with, made with hands, corrupted hands. These were, according to verse 23, copies of heavenly things. You know, I, um, my mom's getting up in years. The days are coming when she's going to enter the presence of the Lord. She has a will, and I have a copy. Guess what? That copy's not going to do me any good. I cannot bring that copy to the attorney and say, I need you to carry this out. The same thing's true here. These were copies of the original. What's the original? But the heavenly things, the true things. Um, verse 24 to 26 says, Not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. He's not trying to cheapen the Old Covenant. He's not trying to disparage the Old Covenant. It had its purpose and it served it. Even though man in his wickedness failed to see it. Man in his wickedness took all of the rituals and rites and, and, and robes and, and pomp and circumstance and said, Oh, this is the point. We get to make God look good by these rituals. <laughs> that's, that's, that's part of why I said that. <laughs> How often do we look around at the quality of the music program? The, the, the particular way in which something is done in the church service and think that's the point that's going to make God look glorious. No! The best we can do would tarnish him. I love uh, a very brief quote I heard this week and it's kind of off from what we're looking at, but it fits. Um, Paul Washer this week was talking about people who say, God didn't give up on me. Boy, it's a good thing God didn't give up on me. He says, you know why he didn't give up on you? Because he didn't trust you in the first place. <laughs> it's true. It's true. This isn't about you and me. This isn't about how you and I can do things and, be, and, and because of what we do, get to stand before him. This is about him 
and what he's doing. And oh yeah, he painted a picture of it for us to see beforehand. How about where? When the, when the high priest stepped into that holy of holies, what did he see? What was there? What's that? The ark. And no, Noah wasn't there. Um, yeah, he saw the ark. And boy, what a gorgeous piece of furniture. But it was a piece of furniture. The ark. And above the ark, or as a part of the ark, we had the cherubim standing, the mercy seat, yes. And the cherubim with their wings spread. Um, which represented the presence of the living God and the glory of God dwelt be between the cherubim we're told in the Old Testament. But it was just a visible manifestation of the invisible God. That's all. But look in verses 24 to 26 um, in verse 24, the last part of verse 24. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Not a visible manifestation that gave people a concept that God was there. God himself. Now, how are we doing so far in our man-performed religion? Even though it was set out by God, how are we doing in our, you know, hmm. let's go back here to this. Why? Why would you? Easily corruptible, inferior, and we've seen already incapable. But I get to do something. And isn't that the root? Like, hey, I had my hand. And, so, and that can be as simple today as, but I had to make the choice. I did it. Without that, all of what God did would have been used, wasted. I had to make a choice. We want something to hold on to. And the Jews of that day were in the same position, not just in a vacuum, though. Remember that this was rooted in the fear of persecution. Persecution was heating up. 
against Christians. Up until then, it had been mainly aimed at the Jews when it happened by Rome. But now, both the Jews were getting tired of Christians and Rome was getting tired of Christians. And so the heat was getting turned up and they were in the crossfire. So yes, there was more motivation for them than there would be for us. But, go back? You're going to go back to this? How about the when? Verse 7 says, once a year. And yes, I always end up writing crooked, so it sinks down and blocks what I'm writing later. Once a euro. Once a euro. Or I could do it. I was listening to to a J. Um, yeah, Martin Lloyd Jones on the way over here this morning. Once a yeah. Uh, once a year. But look at look at verse 24 now. Whoa, got to remember which is in which hand. Look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places, into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but now, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with, and we'll, we'll stop right there for the moment. Um, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. Actually, let's begin verse 26. We're going to skip over something in 25 for a second and come back. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly. And a little later, Christ entered once for all in verse 26. Boy, I really botched that writing. Okay. Once for all. Instead of once a year. How did they enter? Summary statement. How do mean? Well, you push the curtain aside. No, I don't mean that. How did the priest have to enter that holy of holies? Never, Never without blood. But in this case, we had, and we just read it, blood of another. Over here, we have his own blood. Do you see why verse 23 says better sacrifices than these? Boy. But how easily we want to trade in what's over here on the right. Our, what we in our petty imaginations and corrupted imaginations think 
will glorify God. And that's what the Jews thought they could, hey, this will glorify him too. We'll just do it trusting in Jesus. We'll just do it, believe it. Maybe they were thinking that. Maybe they were thinking of abandoning him altogether. But they didn't. But if they were thinking, we'll do this while in our hearts focusing on Jesus, they still didn't realize that that would be abandoning him. And then verse 26, I'm sorry, before we get to the why. Why did the high priest go in there? To to, but first, for his own. For his own and. Um, uh, get down that load to, to, to write, I... What's that? That's true. That's true. Own <laughs> sin out of others. Sorry to turn my back on you. Oh, yeah, I am. What am I doing here? Um, contrast <laughs> is that it, in Christ, not only is there a lack, whoa, a lack of sacrifice for his own not only is there a lack of sacrifice for his own sin because it's not needed. But it doesn't accomplish the same thing. The one temporarily gets rid of the consequences. The other puts away sin. It's gone. It's dealt with. It's over. Praise God for such a sacrifice. Praise God for such a savior. Why would you and why would I turn our backs on that? Good things, the bad things. Well, it comes in one bad, it was still a good thing, but notice everything the Yeah. Everything is a There is no more trying. Yeah. Yeah. Expiated? Expiated. You need to have the 
So, um, in Copperhead, yeah. That's why uh, Mormon brothers or Mormon friends or whatever you call them, they have, they have a minuscule amount of Russia offering. It's completely wrong. But the thing is that you don't write one in a lot of places. Because they say, yeah, but it's been covered. They don't know brothers and sisters that they're, they're still. Because their God is not God at all. They a, a copy that was running out of toner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's still insufficient in every way because they don't have a true sacrifice that not only takes away sin, puts away sin, but imparts righteousness. Yeah. Um, doesn't exist in that system. No, thank you, thank you. And and I I like I was gonna head for what you said in your first phrase there. It's easy to imagine a reason. We do, we do. We trade away the best. So that we can have what would otherwise be good. Why? Because we are earthly. Because we still have the remnants of, of the flesh. And we can get the good now. Offer a kid this piece of candy. Or the whole bag if you'll wait until 4 o'clock this afternoon. He'll take the piece every time. Be thankful for that in a lot of ways. Can you imagine what that would do to that kid? Anyway, now let's look at verse 26. And this has to do with Christ offering himself once. For then, if he offered it, had to offer himself more than once, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's an interesting thing that the author alludes to that I had not noticed until I was looking this over this week. Uh, we talked last week about, or yeah, I think it was last week, about the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. Anybody not here and didn't hear what that is and doesn't know what that is? Okay, um, the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation is that when, when they partake of the elements, the high priest, or not the high priest, the priest, will utter these uh, Latin phrases or Latin words, and I don't know those exact words or, or what they mean, but when he says that, this is no longer grape juice. And a piece of cracker and bread. In Roman Catholic belief, it actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And the belief is that Christ is actually sacrificed again. But what the author is saying here goes way beyond that. 
Because it doesn't say that he would have had to suffer often since he died. It says since the foundation of the world. In other words, the sufferings of Christ would have had to begin in the garden. So that Adam and Eve wouldn't have to die. He would have had to suffer again when Cain killed Abel. He would have had to suffer again, and probably multiple, and you know, doubtless multiple times in between, because he would have had to suffer for every individual transgression throughout time. But his sacrifice is so much greater than the sacrifice of those animals, those bulls and goats and birds and all of that and all of the pomp and circumstances and all of the ritual and all of the pageantry and beautiful garments. So much superior. That by one sacrifice. He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Praise God. The privilege of standing here and talking about this. I'm just, oh man. Um, so let's look at verse 27 now. Just as it, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Through the plan of God, death is something that happens to a person once. And I know there are going to be some of you whose mind is going to go, wait a minute. We got CPR now. We've got defibrillators. Is he dead dead or is he just mostly dead? <laughs> There's a difference. That is, it's death to us. Whoa. All of a sudden it's ringing. Um, it's death to us. And from our perspective, from God's perspective, no, that's not death. You ain't there yet. <laughs> it's coming later. For whatever reason, God ordained that that person come close, but no, no cigar. Um, that sounds like something you'd want to achieve, but um, death happens once to everyone. So Christ's death was a once for all occurrence. It had to be because this was a man, Christ Jesus, that died. Uh, I want to touch briefly on that point. The deity did not die. The man died. God did not suffer. The man 
suffered. Why? Because God has all life in himself inherently. It is a part of his nature to be alive. You cannot kill that. You cannot take life from it. Think about the implications of that when Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. <laughs> what are the implications? This is the God man. But I lay it down of my own, of my own accord. And I lay it down so that I may take it up again. This has been granted to me by the Father. See, even for, for him as a human, he's like, no, that had to be a special granting. <laughs> the perfect human still had to be a special granting. But um, finally, let's close with uh, the second half of verse 28. That Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When Christ returns, it will not be to deal with sin again. And that, there is, there is a t-shirt I saw fairly recently, there was fairly recently, I think it was at a, I don't remember, it was on the news anyway, some mob of people demonstrating angrily against something. And it may have been the, the reversal of Roe v. Wade. I don't remember. But I saw a man wearing a t-shirt that said, if Jesus does return, kill him again. Oh, wow. Good luck to you. Yeah. <laughs> remember, death is the consequence for sin. And that's all it is. Death entered the experience of mankind only because of sin. Now, I am not saying that if somebody dies, we can go, oh, they must have sinned re recently. No, that's not the point. The principle of sin, the fact that we are guilty of it in Adam and by our own choices throughout our lives is the reason why we die. When Christ comes back, it won't be to deal with sin again. Not in that sense. So killing him again, out of the question. Out of the question. Now, it, let me hasten to say, it will be to deal with sin, <laughs> but as judge, not as a sacrifice. His second coming will be for the purpose of finalizing the salvation of his people. When, when he comes back, all the remnants of sin that drag us down, all the suffering that we go through in this life, over, done, finito, finished. Y listo, as we, as we said in Venezuela. It's all over. 
Stand on that fact. Rest on that fact. There's a whole other thing I wanted to get into. I mean, not, not wanted to in the sense of was planning to, but I looked at it and I go, oh man, that would it's another passage of scripture, but oh, it would be so worth it and it would take a long time, but oh, I wish, you know. It, it, if, if you know the comments that I make when other people are teaching, it's often to bring another passage of scripture in that ties in, well, this is a, just just read Daniel 7. It's, it's amazing um, how it fits in with, with this whole thing. But um, the day will come when he will appear. And he will have come if you belong to Christ. Not if you, I'm not saying if you call yourself a Christian or if you go to church. What are we, that, that's over here. If you belong to Christ, if he has claimed you as his own, the day will come when he will appear and he will have come to take you where sin will never again harass you. So what's the final lesson? Comparing this, that, and the final summation of what we've been saying. I would sum it up with Paul's words. Examine yourselves, whether you be in this faith. Put yourselves to the test. Or do you not realize that Christ is in you unless you have believed in vain? Let's pray.